if things happen the way that most folks um, think it's going to go, which means that the next 30, 60, 90 days are still going to be very tough. We're still going to be in a situation where there's a lot of volatility. Interest rates are still on the higher side and home prices still haven't come down to a level to where buyers want to jump back into the market. So that's kind of what we're seeing for the next 30, 60, 90 days. But we're all expecting a much better spring market, which we never got last year. Hey, folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. I'm coming to you on December 23rd. This is the Friday before the Christmas weekend um, in the office. It is uh, 12 degrees here in Dallas. But my guest, Victoria DeLuce, the Senior Vice President of Business Development and a Capital Markets Thought Leader, she's in Detroit. So like she's at like a negative 20-something wind chill. So like I can't complain at all about the Dallas weather today. This is an incredible conversation. I, I can't even express how much I enjoyed speaking with Victoria. Her LinkedIn title is Capital Markets Thought Leader, but she actually serves as a Senior Vice President of Business Development at Del Mar Mortgage. And she does an incredible job at bringing her capital markets expertise, her understanding of what's happening in the interest rates world and how the markets are driven by economic and industry um, data points and leading and lagging data. And helping interpret that for originators to better communicate with their referral partners and clients and have a feel for what's happening in the market. We talk a lot about how hedging works and she gives us some background into her first job at a hedge advisory firm, which is a fascinating conversation for me. We lead into talking about the Federal Reserve and some of the data points that Logan Motoshami and Mike Simonson are watching very closely that will impact how the market plays out in 2023. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Victoria as much as I enjoyed recording it. I hope everybody has an awesome holiday break. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Um, this is dropping the, the week between Christmas and New Year's. And I'm thrilled that we're able to bring this awesome content to you while you're taking some time off to be with your families and resting and preparing for a busy and productive 2023. That is what we're all working toward. Happy holidays and enjoy this conversation with Victoria DeLuce. Victoria, welcome to Housing News. Thank you so much for having me. The first question I have for you is, does your business card actually have the job title Capital Markets Thought Leader on it? Or is that, is that just a pure, purely like, like link, LinkedIn description? It is purely a LinkedIn description. And the reason why I put that on there is because I spent the majority of my career in capital markets. I just recently moved over to the biz dev side. So while I've always been a big part of business development and recruiting, um, I've actually never run the department myself or built the department myself. Um, because, but because I like trying new things, um, that's what I'm doing now. And I'm putting my capital markets background to work in that capacity. I think it's a great descriptor and like gives a lot of context to the expertise you bring professionally and to this conversation. I'd love to kind of start earlier in your career. And I was looking at your profile and see that you have experience from a mortgage trader to leading capital markets or secondary desk to now in biz dev. Like, how did you get into mortgage and how has this evolution of your career kind of played out over the years? 
So I fell into mortgage much like everybody else, completely on accident. Um, I happened to be going through a life-changing event, a divorce at the time uh, in my early to mid-20s. And I literally just took the job that paid me the most, and that was at a hedge advisory firm. I actually came from an accounting um, background with Automotive Dealership Group, um, Detroit Automotive, and um, started off at Vice Capital Markets, which is a hedge advisory firm. And I was super excited to have the job and um, was learning a ton. But then I saw the traders, uh, the traders picking up the phone, calling the the Wall Street broker dealers. And it looked super cool, super sexy. And I'm like, I want to do that. So I went to my boss, uh, Chris Bennett, who is still the owner and principal of Vice Capital and said, hey, how do I become a trader? And at the time, I had only had an associate's degree. And he's like, well, you know, you really need to have a bachelor's degree. Um, I'd really like to see something in finance, mathematics, economics, something like that. So I went back to school as a single mom, um, finished my bachelor's degree up, came back in two years and said, hey, I've got it. Let's make me a trader. Um, so he made me a trader. I became a junior trader. and I was pretty good at it and elevated into senior trader. And um, by the time I left Vice Capital, I was there for about six and a half years, almost seven years. And um, I just knew that there was more for me to learn out there, more experience for me to have. And I wanted to broaden my horizon. And so I took a position with Quicken, um, now Rocket. And um, I started off as their, I went there as their Ginny May trader. But shortly after, uh, they decided that uh, they wanted me to be their non-agency jumbo trader. And I learned so much in that position about how the market really works Um, because non-agency, it's a very um, opaque market and you really have to make the market. You don't have the agency setting all the rules for you. Um, So I learned a lot in that role, but I also knew I always wanted to be in leadership. So I had an opportunity come up with uh, Company Success Mortgage Partners, and I went over there to kind of build out their capital markets department started off as um, really a two-person lock desk. And uh, over five and a half years, I had developed a true bona fide capital markets department of six people trading in-house, running all analytics in-house. Um, and But because I like trying new things, I had an opportunity um, with a consumer direct division. And a previous client of mine started a lead source and I ran with it and over a three-year period, built out a consumer direct division and from there um, made one other quick stop. And now I'm at Del Mar building out their uh, business de- uh, business development um, division. So I like learning new things. I like trying new things. But um, at my heart of hearts, I'll always be a capital markets person. That's a fascinating path. Can, can we go back to hedge advisory? I, I don't have a lot of exposure to hedge advisory firms. Can you tell us about that business model and like the types of clients that hedge advisory firms work with and like what the, what the true objective is? Yeah. So for, and there aren't very many hedge advisory firms out there. So Vice Capital is one of them. You've got MCT, Mayak, Optimal Blue. There's really only a handful of hedge advisory firms and really what they do, it's, it's in the title. They, they advise mortgage companies, banks, credit unions on how to handle hedging and maximizing their execution. So at Vice Capital, at least when I was there, we had, um, call it 40 clients at the time. And we handled everything from just advising those mortgage companies or banks or credit unions to running essentially a capital markets for hire. You're running the hedge for them. You can be trading their loans, creating their pools, 
running all of their analytics, essentially to make sure that they're making money when they sell their loans. And that's that's really the the goal and the job of a hedge advisory firm. So I imagine if you're running a the secondary function for a for a lender, it's pr- a, a smaller scale IMB who doesn't have the 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 capacity or the resources to set up their own desk internally. Well, actually, um, almost all mortgage companies have, except for like maybe like a Quicken or a Loan Depot, but um, even even. Quicken or Rocket now for the longest time worked with like a QRM, but even like Union Home, uh, Cross Country, Churchill, companies like those still utilize hedge advisory firms just as a double check. And some of them still have them, you know, pool their loans and all of that as well. Really interesting. So how does the demand for hedge advisory change in, in different market cycles or is it pretty consistent kind of across the, you know, origination cycle? I would say that it stays pretty consistent. Where hedge advisory firms really come into play is um, if you are actually hedging. If you're committing your loans on a mandatory basis or creating securities, you need to hedge your pipeline with that. Now, if you're a very small company and you're still going best effort, meaning you're making those best effort commitments to a Wells Fargo or an Amerihome, and those companies are taking on the hedge risk, you don't really need a hedge, hedge advisory firm. And in different market cycles, it may make sense to go best effort versus hedging. But even in this super volatile market that we've had this year, the companies that stuck with hedging and did it right and did it well, especially partnered with a really great hedge advisory firm, ended up making far more money than somebody going best effort. That That's really interesting. So you built this incredible capital markets expertise. And I, you mentioned you had an interest in leadership. Was the 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 path to leading a biz dev function at Del Mar your your step toward career growth, or how, how did you think about like what you were giving up as a capital markets expert moving into this new function versus what you gained professionally? So that's the number one question that I've been asked about making this transition. How does somebody go from being a capital markets person to being a biz dev person? And the honest answer is, I love people. And I love helping people. And I felt that I could do a much better job at that in a biz dev role than I could in capital markets. Um, my favorite part about this industry, my favorite part about my career growth are the relationships that I've created along the way. Um, it, I would love to sit here and say, oh, I've done it all myself. Look at me. But I really haven't. I've leaned on some really smart, really amazing people that have helped me grow. Um, and I want to be able to help others do that. And that's why I feel like BizDev is a great spot for me. I mean, I think it comes across that you love people. We were introduced when some of my team members at, at Housing Wire started following your videos on, on LinkedIn, which gives a, a lot of really powerful context to some of the, the key housing and economic data points that our, that our newsroom and team cover very closely. You're doing a great job translating what that means to the market. What encouraged you to start taking your expertise, which comes across as a capital markets expert and economic, um, knowledgeable economic professional to social media and like sharing those like viewpoints with the, you know, your broader network instead of just the folks inside of your organization? So over the last several years, um, the organizations that I've worked with, um, would always have me do these training sessions or training seminars with the, with the originators that worked for our companies. And the feedback that I would get from those training sessions were so powerful 
that when I stepped into this role, I, I kind of asked myself, how do I keep that? Like, why would I just keep this at a company level instead of spreading this you know, across social media to help more people? And in the feedback that I get, from loan originators. And I'm targeting realtors as well, because my, my thought process is if I can educate originators on these topics that are so, so important and honestly affect their paychecks very heavily. I mean, you look at all the things that are going on in the market right now and over the last year and originators that were making more money than they've ever made in their entire lives over the last couple of years, see that cut in half. Or now they're making a fraction of what they're making. And it's all completely market driven. And if I can help originators become more educated and more knowledgeable about that, I'm helping them in their business. But their goal is to reach out to potential referral partners or help their referral partners grow their business. And so I kind of just did a a leap to help them do both help their business and help the referral partners. And so the reason why I did it is because I was doing it on a small scale and receiving a ton of positive feedback. And when I say positive feedback, not like, oh, Vic, you did a good job. Thank you for doing that. It was like, this made a difference in my business. This made a difference in how I look at the business. This made a difference in how I'm able to help my referral partners. And so that's why I did it. So when you were doing the the trainings internally with originators, what were some of the questions that that you were getting? Were there areas that you needed to circle back on as you were like, you know, too high level in your expertise, you needed to like like translate differently? What were the the questions that you felt like you needed to double down on in your in your speeches? So it's really funny. Um I I worked for a hedge advisory firm for the first six and a half years of my career and I never spoke to a loan originator. And then I started at Quicken um, or Rocket now, and most of the loan originators that would reach out to me would reach out to me for personal financial advice, which obviously I couldn't give. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Well, because they think capital markets, trader, you understand the markets. What what stock should I be investing in? I'm like, not my job. Um, And uh, so when I started off at Success... I was so used to speaking to other traders and other, um, you know, speaking to folks at Goldman Sachs or TIAA craft and speaking in a certain type of language that the first time I spoke to a loan officer, that loan officer called our head of sales and was like, I can't talk to this girl. Like, I don't understand anything she says. Like, I, I, like how, how do you want me to talk to her about a price concession when she's out here talking about, you know, coupons and mortgage-backed securities and all of that? So um, I took that as a, a, a learning opportunity and really focused for the next, call it seven, eight years on refining my ability to speak to originators and honestly, just anybody about what's going on in the housing industry in a way that they can understand. So it's helpful and impactful for them. Um, so that's number one. That's kind of how I got to the point of being able to have those conversations. And the, the questions that I get are honestly the all of the black box questions that everybody wants to learn about in capital markets in the market. And that's the, the number one question I get, how does hedging work? And I feel like it's in my head a pretty simple um, explanation. And I've been able to break it down in such a way for loan originators, but explaining hedging always goes much better with a visual. Um, but also things like how do you get like I just did this one yesterday and it was a very, very brief overview of like, how do you put a rate sheet together? How do you even come up with the interest rates or the why did the market move that way? Um, 
And I did a whole series last week on key economic indicators and the importance of those and how they move the market and how they affect um, borrower interest rates and those kind of things. So it's it's kind of a broad spectrum, but it always starts off with those black black, black box items. You're, you're writing the script for the a big chunk of the rest of this conversation, Victoria. So I, I have to I have to like I have to ask like, can you how does how does hedging work? Give us the give us the explanation that you would you know the short form explanation that you would give a team of originators. Yeah. So the way that I explain hedging is every every mortgage company has to bring in a certain amount of revenue per loan. Okay. And so let's say that they have to bring in 300 basis points or three points, right? They've got to pay the originator. They've got to pay their bills at the corporate office and they've got to pay that originator or branch's bills as well. So let's say that equates to 300 basis points. The goal with hedging is not actually to make money. The goal is to protect that 300 basis points. Okay. So when capital markets professionals go to put together their rate sheets and they do all of the calculations, it's actually pretty simple pretty simple building blocks to create that rate sheet. They pick the rate that produces 300 basis points. So let's say today in this market, that's a six and a quarter interest rate. So today, when we lock that six and a quarter interest rate, we're telling the borrower, cool, you get this. We expect that that's going to pay us 300 basis points today. But we know 30 days from now, when that loan closes, the market could be very different. So what we do is we put a what we call a hedge on or a TBA trade. And the TBA trade works opposite of what the market does. We're essentially, so we literally call up, now we can do it you know, via um, websites or whatever. But when I was still trading, you'd literally call the broker dealer up and then you would ask to put on coverage to cover a handful of loans, call it a million dollars worth of loans, and you're taking a position in that market. Now, the agreement that you're making with the broker dealer is that they're going to essentially do the opposite of what the market does. If the market gets worse, they're going to pay you the mark, the difference in the market change. If the market gets better, you're going to pay them. That's the agreement that you make. So why would you do that? Well, when you lock that loan today and then you sell it 30 days from now and the market's gotten two points worse, 200 basis points worse, which we've seen happen all year long, well, we originally wanted to make 300 basis points on that loan. But when we go to sell it, now we're only going to make 100 basis points. We just lost two points. And if that's how we ran our businesses, we'd all be out of business. But we entered into that agreement with the broker dealer 30 days ago, where they said that they would pay us the difference in that market movement. So instead of just making 100 basis point, that broker dealer makes us whole on the additional 200 basis points. And we're able to bring in that 300 basis points pay the loan originator and pay all, pay all of our bills. Now, on the inverse, the market gets better, which we're hoping to see in 2023. Um, and we want that original 300 basis points. The market improves 200 basis points. And now we're making 500 basis points on that loan. We're all brilliant. We're all captains of industry making a ton of money. But again, because we hedge, we entered into an agreement saying that we would pay them that 200 basis point difference. But still, we're making the 300 basis points that we agreed to make. And um, that's how most mortgage companies run their business. Yeah. So it makes the secondary desk a a desk that enables stability instead of becoming a profit center. 
That is correct. Now, there are definitely ways to create more profit in the capital markets department by making sure that you're signed up with all the right investors, that, you know, you're looking for opportunities when you're creating your own pools and working with those broker dealers. So that is what their job is, but their job is not to make money on the hedge alone. Interesting. And I, I'm assuming if we go back to the beginning of the conversation and um, talk about hedge advisory, it's hedge advisory firms who help lenders ensure that they're signed up with many of the right investors and are thinking about, hey, are we are we selling whole loan? Or are we like pulling together our own pools? And like those are the strategies that that enable lenders to find a little bit of margin in the capital markets function. You are absolutely right. Okay. And in the, the really great part about working with a hedge advisory firm is the fact that they see how a number of companies go to market versus just relying solely on your own capital markets person who only sees how you go to market. And so you're able to get additional intel on what are best practices and what's working now. As we get ready for the holidays, which is really just code for the end of the year and a focus on 2023, we keep hearing lenders and podcast guests talk about gaining a competitive advantage and not letting loan quality or extraordinary client service slip. Our enterprise loan quality partner for the Housing News Podcast, QC Ally, has a few tips. One, have a big focus on pre-funding QC. And two, know your risk quality tolerance and test and manage it to provide a clear line of sight into the health of your loan manufacturing process. If you have certainty regarding your operational risk, you can expand your credit box while streamlining processes to increase client service. QC Ally calls this the power of the pre-fund. I want to take the explanation of um, hedging and like think about like how an originator uses that in their in their day to day job. And I, your explanation was like was perfect and like on point with something that um, a non capital markets professional can understand. But it's still probably not the explanation you want to give to your borrower and explain that like, hey, you're we're we're, we're locking at six and a quarter. Um, our cost cost we need three hundred bips. Our cost of capital is three and a quarter. So like eh, that doesn't feel that 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 great to the consumer. So so what is the originator supposed to take from that knowledge and use in becoming a more effective originator and communicating effectively with their referral partners and their clients? Like how does that knowledge help them in their, their function of originating mortgages? So one of the, one of the reasons why, and they don't necessarily need to communicate how hedging works to a borrower or referral partner, but one of the things that they should be communicating is that we're one of the only industries that guarantees a rate on something 30 to 45 to 60 days before that you know, that consumer actually takes possession of it. Yeah. And so when, when the, the, the prime example of explaining hedging to a borrower or referral partner is when the market actually gets better, meaning the, the bond price has gotten better, interest rates have gotten better. Um, because oftentimes what will happen is the borrower will come back and say, hey, I saw on CNBC that interest rates are getting better. Can I get that better interest rate now? And you know, a lot of companies do have a float down policy or a renegotiation policy, but at the end of the day, those are just, it's a fancy way of saying pricing exception because you did enter into that agreement. So that's when it becomes more important to understand how we protect ourselves. But I think that the, the best thing that originator can try to explain is that 
hey, regardless of how the market goes, and honestly, the market's been getting worse all year long, we've got you. You're going to get that rate regardless. When you go to buy a couch, you don't tell them, hey, I'm going to buy this couch in 45 days. Can you hold that price for me for with 8% inflation year over year? It's not going to happen. Even before COVID, we've been in kind of a, a multi-decade downward trend in mortgage interest rates. And this year, we've obviously seen that trend reverse. But in, in all reality, we're just responding to a, a knee-jerk during, during COVID. Um, how is the function of a capital markets desk and like the, the practice of hedging and the practice of setting a rate sheet changed from this like long-term um, downward pressure on mortgage rates to this fast reversal that we've seen in the last nine or 10 months? It has been, I feel like the biggest learning lesson or the biggest learning opportunity or lesson for all capital markets people over the last decade, it's been, I don't want to say boring, but it's been relatively boring relative to what we've seen over the last three years. Um, yep. You know, Events like this are very exciting for capital markets people because oftentimes it's like, you know, day in, day out, we're coming up with new pools that we want to create and all of that. But this has, I feel like this has really separated the really great capital markets folks who really understand what's going on in the market from, and this isn't meant to be an insult, but oftentimes you, you have a piece of software that tells you what to do. And you don't always understand what the inputs are into that piece of software. And I feel like this is really separated. The, the last three years has really separated the herd there. And so, but even for the, for the folks that were relying on the systems, it's given them an opportunity to really jump in and learn more about what's going on and how to manage that. But even for the most seasoned capital markets person, watching interest rates go up that fast, trying to keep up with, um, you know, the, when we look at our trade screens, we see coupon stacks. So if the highest coupon on our trade screen, meaning these are the, these are the bonds that are currently trading right now is yielding no premium. What do we do? Like, how do we come up with a rate sheet for a borrower that has no premium on it? And so it's, it's helped capital markets people really get back to their roots and back to the foundation. Um, and going out there and trying to create value for the companies that they work for and, you know, the borrowers that they serve. So our lead analyst, Logan Motoshami, has been on what he's called inverted yield curve watch since Thanksgiving of, of 2021. And we know we saw the, the yield curve officially invert um, in the second half of 2022. How, how has an inverted yield, yield curve impacted pricing or the capital markets function, if it has? This is a question, like a true question that I don't know the answer to. Yeah. I mean, I think that the inverted yield curve is just always, it's it's a good benchmark to tell us what we should be expecting in the future. So if we have an inverted yield curve, we're expecting, I don't want to say bad things, but we're expecting things like recession. We're expecting an economic downturn. We're expecting those kind of things. And so that kind of gives us an indication of what we should be looking at and how we should be thinking as a capital markets um, division. But capital markets, while we do want to look at the long term, we have we have to be ready minute by minute. That's why we're constantly watching those trade screens, constantly watching what's going on with mortgage-backed securities, and constantly putting out reprices, which we don't want to do. <laughs> um, but that's so really it's more of just like an indication of what is to come. Because even with the with the yield curve, that changes day to day too. 
So L- Logan also called in this past summer that we've officially entered a housing recession about about six months ago a- ahead of the the broader economy, which you know as a as a business operator and a professional in the mortgage ecosystem, I kind of have to think of as somewhat of good news. If we're a leading sector into a downturn, we should be a leading sector on the uh, on on the way out. Um, so you've got it. You've got it. Okay. So I'm, I'm good. I'm good in that assumption. So as we talk about the, the stage we are in, in this housing cycle, let's, let's jump over to talking about some economic data. So what are the key data points that you're paying the most attention to at this stage? Yeah. So obviously the number one thing is going to be the federal funds rate and what the fed is doing and how that's affecting the mortgage industry. Um, but again, while the markets and traders are pricing in what's happening with the Fed funds rate, what they're actually doing is pricing in inflation and looking at inflation and how that's affecting the market. Um, so the Fed funds rate, huge one, inflation. So that's going to be CPI, the CPI number that we watch, which is the, the most widely accepted uh, measure of inflation. PCE um, is another one that I watch. Um, and I I believe that one just came out yesterday. Sometimes my days just run together. Um, personal consumption expenditures. And I have the hardest time saying that for some reason. <laughs> um, so that's another one I watch. Non-farm payroll and unemployment. So that is that is a huge one to watch right now. And we can't look at any of these individually. We have to look at them in aggregate. Um, and uh, just as a piece of the puzzle and a piece of the pie, One of the things I wanted to bring up was um, when we look at unemployment and we look at um, uh, an unemployment rate of 3.7% right now, there's a huge controversy over participation rate. And and is is that an accurate reading of what's really going on? So I went back and um, preparing for one of my one of my videos that I do. And back in December of 2008, we had an unemployment rate of 7.3%. Okay. But we also had a, partic- a participation rate of sixty six point four percent. All right. So give us the, give us the definition of participate participation rate. Participation rate is anybody from the ages of sixteen to sixty four that is not institutionalized, and that is literally the the definition. <laughs> How much of our country is institutionalized? <laughs> well, that, that's actually a good question. I don't know the answer to that one, but we should look it up at some point. Um, let's hope that it's, let's hope that it's, uh, either the same or less than it was in 2008. But, um, so yeah, 16 to 64, um, these are able-bodied workers. So again, our participation rate, 66.4% in to December, 2008 with a 7.3% unemployment rate. And in November, um, 2022, so just this last month, we're at a 3.7% unemployment rate, but our participation rate is at 62.1%. So, 4.3% less participation. And that's a lot. I mean, if you, uh, if you took that four point delta between 66 and 62 and added it to the 3.7, it looks kind of consistent. Well, and, and remind, and remember, this is in the height of the financial crisis. So my, my point being is that I think that, you know, when we, when we look at, 3.7% unemployment rate. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're essentially almost full employment. We're really not. But yeah, that, that, those, those are the things that I'm really looking at right now as far as key economic indicators go. And that's why, 
That's why I recorded the the key economic educational series last week for loan originators to understand what they should be looking at to understand what's going to move the market in the coming you know weeks and months. All right, so you talked through a a lot of economic data points, and it feels like this is the first cycle where like every day, every morning before we see inflation data or, or PCE, I'm like. I'm rooting for a negative read where like in most, in most cycles, like you're like rooting for like positive economic growth and low unemployment and um, GDP growth. And like, I'm probably not alone in that. Like we're looking for the federal reserve to have a reason to slow down. So how do you, we're not just watching what the federal reserve um, does. We're also watching what they say. So how has your like interpretation of fed speak, evolved in the last few quarters and like what do you, what are you paying closest attention to in the language to have a better feel for what we should anticipate in 2023 well i the i think the federal reserve or jerome powell got himself in a little bit of trouble um back last year when he gave us a direct indication of how much they were going to raise rates by um and then they came out we had a huge cpi number i believe it was in june and they actually raised 75 basis points which traders scrambled to price in right before it happened um so he's obviously not giving direct indications anymore but it's more so just his tone his tone of are it, are we still seeing an expanding economy and even when we do see those you know cpi numbers that are still in the 7 8% range how, did, how is he perceiving that? And it, does he believe that it's slowing down? Those are some of the things. And it's, again, it's mostly in his tone and how he's um, delivering that information. So one of the things that he discussed in the last announcement was going up to potentially you know, over a 5% Fed funds rate. Um, I think the market almost ignored that because traders are already pricing in a decrease um, and the Fed funds rate as early as June of next year. So again, just just listening to what his thoughts are on the over economy, overall economy, what his tone is, and um, looking at the the near term and the long term um, interpretation from the Fed. So that's pretty much it. It seems like the Jerome and the Federal Reserve hate to see like the stock market react positively to like the back end of, of their messaging. And we've had, had had several fed days where the market is shot up several hundred points on the back end, which, which means the market is interpreting the tone of the message to be, Hey, we say we're going to do this, but we might, we might not, it might not be as bad as we say it's going to be. And we're just like putting a strong faith. The feds putting a, you know, a, a tough face forward, even though there's a change in tone coming in in 2023 how does like do you see the mortgage market and the capital markets responding the same way on the back end of some of those um those fed talks i absolutely do and so um again i just mentioned that the the market is already pricing in the potential of um a rate decrease as early as june and i i again jerome powell's comments are just one piece of the puzzle like we we can't hang everything that we know and believe on that um, because again, he he is trying to present, um, like you said, like a, a I don't want to say more like negative tone or like a harder tone um, to the market, but we're again a, just one piece of the puzzle in and um, in key economic indicators here. 
Um, so yeah, again, this, the, I, I do think that the mortgage market does, does listen to what Jerome Powell has to say and takes that into consideration. But there are so many other factors to consider. Um, like you look at the MBA and what their forecasts are. So the MBA is projecting that interest rates are going to go down um, to the low fives by the end of next year. Also projecting that GDP, that we'll have negative GDP for the first two quarters of next year consecutively. And so when you look at information like that and you compare it to what Jerome Powell is saying, you, you, you kind of have to weigh out which one seems a little more likely. So Victoria, we were, we were talking about interest rates and you're giving us some context into what you're seeing from the NBA. Um, I've seen in, uh, going back to your LinkedIn videos, you, you've talked about where, where you anticipate mortgage rates going in 2023. Can you give us a little context into what, what you expect to happen next year? Absolutely. And so my expectations do align a lot with MBA and a few of the different factors that I'm looking at right now are what's going on in the general economy and what I expect to come in the first and second quarter of next year. So while it hasn't quite shown up in non-farm payroll numbers and unemployment numbers, every time you turn around, there's a new headline of a major company doing layoffs. So we have like Amazon who's laying off 10,000 white collar workers. It's, you know, not the folks driving around, dropping off the packages. Um, it's they're, they're laying off 10,000 or 1% of their overall workers of um, that are in corporate and tech positions. We also have Meta um, who's laying off 11,000 workers that happened in November. I believe it was, it's 13% of their overall, um, you know, their overall employment ranks. We have Twitter. We're not, we're not going to talk about Twitter today, but we also have some crazy stuff going on at Twitter and what their layoffs are looking like. You can't talk about Twitter. We could like record this in the afternoon and drop into the morning in the next morning and 50 things would have changed between now and then. So like, it's like ir irrelevant to talk about unless you're doing like real time live video. A hundred percent. And I almost feel like what's going on in the, mar in the mortgage market is irrelevant to talk about unless you're talking about it right now in real time. It's funny. I was actually, I was asked to write something for a publication that was coming out in January about what's going on in capital markets. And I'm like, this was a month ago. I'm like, it's going to be irrelevant by the time it happens. So I'll just you know, try to teach about something, but I can't really talk about what's going on in the market for something two months ahead of time. Can I on air on podcasts, like recruit you to write some stuff for us and we can move even faster than that. We will we'll publish like within 24 hours and like really, really hit it. Perfect. I'm, I'm happy to sign up for that. All right. Victoria is on board as a columnist. Just, just another job title to put on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make your life harder. We know you. We know you have three kids, and you're in a new job, and you're capital markets pro who's learning biz dev or killing it at biz dev. Um, but no, we're going to make your life harder. But so, Victoria, we've talked a lot about economic data, um, capital markets. Let's talk a little bit about how all of these inputs are influencing the mortgage industry and. Our team at Housing Wire has published some reports in um, in collaboration with some of the investment banks that cover the the mortgage ecosystem, and they're anticipating a pretty significant wave of consolidation in 2023. And we've seen some of that in 2022, and I think this month in, in December we have seen um, that that wave kind of start to pick up, and we're seeing branches get picked off and teams get picked off and big originators get picked off. And, and now we're starting to see some of the, the midsize and small IMBs um, 
move into the consolidation wave. So give us a view of like kind of what you expect for 2023 on how this market cycle plays out. So if if things happen the way that most folks um, think it's going to go, which means that the next 30, 60, 90 days are still going to be very tough. Um, we're still going to be in a situation where there's a lot of volatility. Interest rates are still on the higher side um, and um, home prices still haven't come down to a level to where um, buyers want to jump back into the market. So that's kind of what we're seeing for the next 30, 60, 90 days. But we're all expecting a much better spring market, which we never got last year. And so if we do get a spring market, I think that it will save some of these smaller to mid-sized IMBs from being gobbled up. But that's a long 90 days. And I think that we're going to continue to see a lot of consolidation in the first quarter of next year. And I think it'll probably slow down toward the end of the second quarter. Um, But I think that a lot of mortgage companies have spent the last six to 12 months wondering how much worse can this get? And I think we just found out this month, like this, I I feel like we've reached the peak, like this is as bad as it's going to get. And it's going to continue into January, a little bit into February, but I really do think that this is the peak. Um, And so I think a lot of the really smart players have already set their merger and acquisition um, wheels in motion. And the ones who haven't and are still losing money will most likely just uh, close up shop. And we've seen that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all know that deals don't happen overnight. Um, it, it takes relationships and time and diligence and capital availability. And so I would anticipate that anybody who's announcing a deal in Q1, those conversations were initiated in Q3 and Q4 of this year. Yeah, there, I mean, there might be some fire sales, um, but those are really closures or exits that are like under the guise of, of, an, of an acquisition. So I think it's like reassuring to to an extent that like I mean your viewpoint the viewpoint of a lot of other people that I respect uh, very much think that we're like seeing how bad it can get this this month in December. Um, listening to Mike Simonson, who's on our team as the president of Altos Research, and and Logan, they're they're watching a couple key data points, and we've in the past start to see mortgage applications pick up um, on actually on like December 25th is like kicking off like this last week of the year into the next year as being a really important read for the health of the following year. And uh, Mike through our Altos data is, is watching the second and third week of January very closely to see if listings start to, to pick up. And that will be the tell if we have like a, a healthy spring buying season. And um, so it seems like there are some uh, housing data points in the next 30 days that give us a, you know, at least somewhat of a, a bellwether of what we can anticipate in the first half of 2023. Yeah. I, I think that that's awesome um, that you guys are tracking that. Um, and to, to do a, a plug for housing wire, I saw your guys's new um, interest rate tracker that you guys are, that you guys have out there. And that's, that's incredible as well. So I think those two things paired together will really help, um, not only capital markets folks, but originators really understand what's going on in the market and to keep a pulse on it. Yeah, we appreciate that. We, we've been running that market rates center for a little while in partnership with um, Optimal Blue and and also bring in like the Freddie Pims data. And we're, we're actually working with um, OB and Black Knight right now on uh, 
on re- refreshing that and uh, you know making it even more resourceful. So I, I appreciate you taking notice of some of the, the progress we're making there. Awesome. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me for an episode of Housing News. This conversation was awesome. Really enjoyed speaking with you and um, so, so much that we are going to we'll pull you in. We're going to make like bring you in to like write, write a column for us at HW. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast. So thank you again and hope you have a great holiday break. Thank you so much, Clayton. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.